today we start with a carol. Welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I am joined by Joseph Bottom for a discussion of caroling. You have just heard an artist's recording of one of his carols, Joy Will Keep Us. Every Christmas we try to do something at the ACF that deals with the American traditions. And also, of course, we talk about the history of Christmas in the movies, but we have not hitherto touched on the musical aspect of Christmas. So I'm especially happy to have you on the show, Mr. Bottom. You're the author of An Anxious Age, one of our best books on religion and perhaps our post-religious future. You have a songbook, Second Spring, 
and the Christmas Plains, and so as a musician, a poet, and an intellectual, you're a rare combination of talents and perspectives. And so I'm glad to have you here to talk about your own songs, how you got writing Christmas songs, and what your experience has been both entering into this grand tradition in reviving old tunes, and of course, what your thoughts are about how the audience responds to these new carols. Well, I think um, the response has been mild at best, but Titus, I'm trying to reach down into something. If the problem of the late modern age is as Max Weber described it, if the problem is one of disenchantment, then what we need here in late modernity is some kind of living connection with the past some kind of density of reference that makes us one with those who have gone before. We need a vocabulary that is poetic in the deepest sense of the word poetic, which is to say an association of words with cosmic reality, which is what, of course, poetry is and what all language wants to be when it grows up. It struck me as I worked through some of the poetic problems uh, in trying to compose poetry and in my prose and my criticism, it struck me that Christmas was a place where the barrier was already thin. The structural barrier that modernity has erected between us and what Max Weber would have called the enchanted garden the place where there is a thickness to language, a thickness to culture, a thickness to the imagination, which wants to penetrate beyond appearances and into the metaphysical depths. And if Christmas was already a thin place where the breakthrough could happen more easily, then I wanted to use that not just because it's true for me personally, and I think it's true for many of us personally because the childhood memories of Christmas are so strong, but also because what the culture needs is that density and thickness. And Christmas just seemed a natural place to lure people in. And so I had begun writing songs in response to a curious problem that I had, Titus, which was that all of my attempts to write poetry, or at least the poetic thoughts that were coming to me, were coming to me in tetrameter quatrains, little square boxes. Every thought I had, every poetic thought was coming out in this form. And I wanted to break through. That wasn't true in my first poetry book. It wasn't true in the the long poem I wrote for René Girard. It wasn't true in the work that I liked for myself. But somehow I had fallen into this rut where every idea was getting crunched down into these little boxes before it would be expressed in my mind. And kind of the way a pianist will undertake five-finger exercises to force themselves to learn again or to expand their finger movement, I began taking old melodies, folk melodies, melodies wrenched from classical settings, even some melodies that a composer friend of mine wrote, Mike Linton from Tennessee, and a few melodies that I wrote. And I began using them because they were irregular at line length or because they were simply pentameter. And I was once again forced out of the tetrameter. I intended these only as exercises, but eventually I looked up and I had dozens of them. 
So I picked a few and published it as a book with my poetry publisher, wonderful St. Augustine's Press. And then I noticed how much I enjoyed it, how much I enjoyed plunging into a specific genre. So each one is an attempt to explore a specific genre and see what makes it work. For instance, in the book, I take up the murder ballad, you know, and I studied it and I thought, oh, well, one of the things is that makes a murder ballad is inverted narrative. You find out Tom Dooley is going to hang before you find out why he's going to hang. Uh, And that seemed to me part of the structure of a murder ballad. And so I began to write a murder ballad following the hard rules of the genre. In exactly the same way, I started to write Christmas carols and started to explore what it is that makes the genre of a carol, of a Christmas carol. And I discovered that it was there in Christmas carols that I found the genre that I loved best for this exercise, which, as I say, was originally a technical practice and not a poetic writing. But it grew to include some of my thoughts about the modern age and disenchantment and why it is that we see so many television programs and movies that reach out in some vague, inchoate way toward the supernatural and the spooky and the frightening and the divine without the old structures to give it sensibility, uh, to give it sense, for that matter. And the Christmas Carol, as a genre, comes with those structures. There is a tale that needs to be told, a tale of shepherds, a tale of the wise men, a tale of a manger, a tale of historical claims about the divine entering the world. And precisely for that reason, I found it congenial. I found it what I wanted to do. And I've written five or six of these now. Some of them have been recorded. They've been performed in Tennessee and at Carnegie Hall. They're not sold, of course, because nothing I do is allowed to make me money, I'm afraid. But the point wasn't really about money. This was a little side project of a side project, a sort of side project two steps down that became something wonderful, something fun, something that helped me in my attempt to write and my attempts to think. Yes, this does seem wonderful to get so much out of a technical exercise, to see it at some point transformed into a contribution to culture. I think that's by itself remarkable. But I'm especially struck by your notion that Christmas is where we are in our modern armor most vulnerable. I have also been thinking about this recently from, from the other side, from stories and movies. I'm not sure who invented the Christmas fairy tale. Was it Charles Dickens or somebody else? But it was intended, obviously, from the beginning as a pre-modern genre to cure a specifically modern problem, cultural amnesia, a certain obliviousness, and a certain inability to live up to old traditions. What seems to be common to all Christmas fairy tales in our modern times is that Christmas is perpetually in danger. And Christmas is in danger not because of our weaknesses, but because of our strengths. It is the things that we are best at that themselves seem to cause the problem. And uh, it is not very common, but it does happen now and then even in Christmas movies that caroling is suggested as a solution. Very seriously, I think, 
to a problem that would seem to be beyond any solution. And so it's great to be able to double check, so to speak, with a poet and a musician. Well, let's think one more step through what you just said, Titus, if you don't mind. It's true that let's take Dickens' A Christmas Carol, the Scrooge story, which is surely the most successful modern Christmas fiction. It's been made into movies more times than one can count. You know, the publication of it is, was simply an extraordinary event in Victorian England. It is the most successful modern presentation of Christmas ever. And it does have a couple curious moments of caroling. When the little boy leans in to the still miserly Scrooge and tries to sing God rest you merry gentlemen and gets chased out. And at the end, when Scrooge sings and dances and goes to the party, you know, one could construct a reading of a Christmas carol out of that, just as one could take very seriously that Dickens gave it the name a carol that it is a song to some degree. And his Christmas stories were often divided into not chapters, but what he called staves, which is a musical term. At the same time, G.K. Chesterton, who was Dickens' greatest reader, complained about A Christmas Carol. He said it represented England's dissociation from the deep European traditions. Given that when the great genius of the 19th century, the literary genius of the 19th century, wanted to write a Christmas story, he had to invent his own mythology because he didn't have the deep wells of Catholic tradition to draw upon. Now, this is Chesterton's complaint, and there is something to it. It is a modern story. Remember, Scrooge's sin is miserliness which is, of course, a very ancient sin that we have known before the arrival of the modern age. But specifically, it comes in being a banker and being a moneylender and being a figure in the modern commercial age, which is, in Dickens' view, an age of deceit. Betsy Trotwood in David Copperfield says something like, uh, it would be no pleasure to a London merchant if he put the actual name on a piece of merchandise. There's a kind of dishonesty that Dickens thinks is present in the modern world. Scrooge is going to have to overcome that. And it is these three Christmas spirits that help him do that. Now, of course, in another sense, it is a fairy tale. To ask about the psychology of Scrooge's conversion is like asking about the psychology of Little Red Riding Hood and the Big Bad Wolf. They're not characters of psychology, they're characters of a fairy tale. I think that Chesterton is complaining that Dickens can't really connect us to the old stories and the old traditions. But I think, much as I love G.K. Chesterton, I think I would defend Dickens here. And I would say Dickens is pushing at the same place I am, albeit much better and more successfully. He's pushing at the thin place. He's trying to find something, a place where the thickness of the world can re-intrude on a modernity that had as its fundamental purpose the disenchantment of the world, the thinning down of the world, the breaking of our social order and our physical order away from the supernatural order. And that is a theme we will see 
over and over again. The Dickensian move, let's make a fairy tale out of this, is what you're going to see in Christmas movie after Christmas movie. Their attempts to find a way past psychology, which is, in their view, a sort of modern thing, modern psychology, past the pressures of the social order and the commercial order to find a place where we are face-to-face with a thinness that we might penetrate to feel the divine. Yes, I think that's true. I would say further that Scrooge is an avowed materialist. He has a certain metaphysics to correspond to his business ideas, and generosity to him is a sin, because it's a waste, and it encourages waste, and indeed philanthropists or altruists to him are vampires. He's an avowed modernist of the most, if not vulgar, then certainly straightforward stripe. And yeah, in Dickens' view, he's Carlyle stripped down to the most vulgar elements. And that's why, you know, when uh, one of the ghosts quotes to him his own line, why don't the poor die and decrease the surplus population? And Scrooge is shamed by this repeating back to him of his own line. And the ghost compares it to an ant eating a leaf, looking down at his hungry brothers on the ground and wishing that they would die. Uh, And this is why Dickens is so great. There's an extravagance about Dickens, about his prose, about his descriptions, even about his characters. Edmund Wilson once complained that the trouble with Scrooge is he's too extravagant even for a miser. He puts too much energy into being a miser. Which shows that he is, of course, going to convert, right? Because miserliness is a thin way of being. This kind of Carlylean despising of the unsuccessful, this kind of social Darwinism that Scrooge puts in a weak and vulgar way, is not capable of holding the kind of energy that Scrooge brings to life. He's already a contradiction from the moment the story opens. Yeah, that's a very good point, that his anger reveals something deeper about himself, a disappointment with himself and the world, that does open him up to something better, at least in the situation where he has to confront his mortality. He is appalled by the notion of materialism taken to its extreme, which would render his own corpse a mere agglomeration of matter to be used in whatever way. And then it seems like he is able to take seriously the claims of the divine on human beings and the way they are shown in generosity and the making and giving of gifts and the receiving of them and in gratitude too. And in our general acknowledgement of our neediness as human beings, which of course Christmas epitomizes. Right. This is the single most sentimental moment in A Christmas Carol which might be qualified as the single most sentimental work in the Dickensian canon, which might be qualified by saying, of all of our great writers, Dickens is the most sentimental, which means we're three steps down into deep sentimentality here. The single most sentimental moment in that that story is when Tiny Tim says he likes to go to church as a lame boy because it might remind people of he who made the lame walk. And Dickens is like tugging there at the heartstrings. He wants you to get teary-eyed when you see that line. Uh, But it is also, 
a way of doing exactly what you just suggested, which is saying it reminds us of human neediness and the way in which Christ fulfilled it. Yes, and it, it would seem that if Christmas is to stay Christmas, then that um, relationship between uh, generosity, gratitude, our essential neediness and the possibility of miracles has to be stressed. And it seems like music has a special purpose to play in this because of all the uh, musical arts, the, the music itself is the one that encounters least um, uh, uh, our pride, our contrariness, our self-importance, not to say ordinariness. It does not encourage resistance, but instead acquiescence, and everyone feels the music inside of him, even when he shares it with everybody else. That seems to well, be unique to it. Let's think about that for a moment, Titus. I, uh, I once wrote a long piece for the Atlantic Monthly called The Soundtracking of America. And it was an attempt to try to think my way through my problem with some of the claims I heard about music. Claims like the one you just made, that it somehow you know, speaks deep to the heart, bypasses the brain to uh, reach into the spirit, uh, combined with my complaint that you couldn't go anywhere in America without hearing music, that <clears throat> you know Frank Sinatra was playing in the restaurant and Andrew Lloyd Webber <clears throat> was seeping from the speakers above the urinals and Donna Summer was thumping in the back of the taxi all the way to the airport, <laughs> and I was getting tired of it. You know, I thought this in a sense... In one sense, of course, this weakens music when it's omnipresent. In another sense, what the hell did we ever expect music to do that we would play it constantly this way? And that second question led me to think about what it is that music does and why exactly we think it a good thing that it skips past the brain. After all, in the mental element, the intellectual element, we think important in every other context uh, Plato didn't much approve of that power of music, and there have been many others. And so I sort of thought my way through it, and I ended up writing Titus an astonishingly anti-music piece. Uh, you know, it was it was a you know an, an exploration down a path that I wasn't fully committed to, but I, I committed to finding out where that path led. And I ended up saying. You know, there's this mathematical element to music. It's very intellectual in one way, but its effect is not the, for us to understand the mathematical structures of it. Our, its effect is something else. And I said, basically, music is chess drenched with perfume. Uh, and, uh, and, oh, I got so abused for this piece, uh, all this criticism of it. Uh, but along the way, I attacked lyrics. And I said, lyrics are, if you pull them out and print them as poetry, they're almost uniformly terrible. Uh, and if you take music that is put, or composers who have put poetry to music, they're almost always failures. Uh, and that's worth exploring, why it is that words have an odd relationship with music. Later, I began to think that perhaps I was wrong. 
uh, and the introduction in my second spring book, which is my my song book that we described earlier, uh, I reprint that Atlantic uh, essay at the end. And the introduction is an attempt really to walk back some of it, to say the problem I had there or the mistake that I made was treating lyrics like high poetry and comparing it to Homer or comparing it to T.S. Eliot. And then saying, you know, uh, no disco song is ever going to reach this level of uh, poetic power. No folk song is going to reach this level of poetic power. And in the introduction to the second song book, I say, well, what if we think about it not as grand poetry, but as poetry within a specific genre, like the murder ballad, like uh, the love song? Uh, and this... This idea, I think, is one of the things that drove me to uh, take my five-finger exercises and, and push them down the line of genera. But uh, it also made me think about or opened the window for me to think about uh, Christmas carols and how it is that <coughs> they can be sometimes so terrible and yet work so well. <laughs> <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> think, uh, <clears throat> sorry. Uh, think, for instance, of one of the greatest carols in English, which is God Rest You Merry Gentlemen. First of all, everybody gets it wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the comma should come after Mary. It's God Rest You Merry Gentlemen, telling, asking God to keep the gentleman Mary. Most people read it and print it and sing it as though it were God rest ye, comma, merry gentlemen, as though they're asking God to send a bunch of revelers to sleep. Uh, but the, instead of asking God to keep these gentlemen joyous. And the rhymes, Titus, they're just so terrible. Um, you know, that's uh, it's it's filled. With, it has lots of filler in it, uh, uh, and I mean, think of it. Unto certain shepherds, an angel came, uh, bringing tidings of the same. How that in Bethlehem was born the Son of God by name, and by name is just stuck in there to to as filler to give us a rhyme, right? I mean, it's it's dreadful poetry, really dreadful. And yet, and yet, somehow in its connection to the past, for this really is an old hymn. This isn't a Victorian invention like Good King Wenceslas. This really is an old, popular folk carol. Uh, somehow it reaches us in a way that, I got to say, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer doesn't, and Good King Wenceslas doesn't both of which are inventions, Rudolph for the commercial age uh, and Good King Wenceslas for the kind of Gladstonian Whig Christianity age of the late Victorians. God rest you merry gentlemen has other things in mind. It's a folk song and it speaks to the folk spirit in an older sense that seems to me quite extraordinary. And that matches Titus something that's worth thinking about when we think about our own experience with carols down through the years. 
Sheslov Miwash once, who had a, you know, a complicated relation with Catholicism and Christianity. Uh, Miwash once said something like, it would be impossible for him to break away entirely because of the Christmas carols he learned as a child. That's where he learned theology. That's where he learned this sense of what words could do. That's what made him a poet. And that's what made him a man. And it was impossible to escape that, even if he wanted to. It would be a species of dishonesty to attempt to do it. My own experience, and I'd like to hear yours, Titus, uh, but my own experience has been that every year one carol catches me and pulls me down into the season. It varies from year to year. One year it was a boy soprano. Do you know that voice that a boy sopranos? It's different from women sopranos. It's just mm-hmm. at its best. It's an incredible kind of purity of voice. Uh, and uh, it was this boy soprano singing with King's College Choir uh, once in Royal David City. And I just felt myself melt. Another year, it was Nat King Cole singing um, Hark the Herald Angels, uh, which is a Wesleyan hymn, a Methodist hymn. But it was that line, mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. And I felt myself melt again. Uh, And every year, it's something. Something catches me, some carol, some particular recording. One year it was this country western version of God Rest You Merry Gentlemen sung in this very melancholy minor key way. And I felt it in my heart. I felt it pull me down into the season. I felt it, to use the image we have been using thus far, I felt it break through the barrier at a place where the barrier was thin. Yes, I know what you mean. Last year it happened to me with the Wixford Carol, and I wasn't playing it. Somebody played it for me, and for whatever reason I wasn't paying attention. I didn't recognize it immediately. I only recognized it for what it was after I had started paying attention, and I only started paying attention because of the deep effect it had on me that, again, I can only compare to listening to these things in childhood. Well, and that's what I mean by a connection. And You know, childhood is the key word. We brought it up with Miwash. We bring it up here with you. We could bring it up in a third place, which is my memoir of childhood Christmases that came out from Random House a couple years ago called The Christmas Plains. And in all three of these places, when I speak about connection, that's one of the things I'm speaking about, of reaching back into the past, which is our own past but our own past as it recapitulates the past of mankind. There's an honesty to childhood here and those memories that when we recall them clearly, we can touch again in adulthood. This is what continental philosopher Paul Ricoeur called second innocence. To try to go back to first innocence, the Garden of Eden, is a mistake. It's infantilizing. It leaves us undeveloped as human beings. But there is an innocence which comes again toward the end. There is an innocence of adulthood that Ricoeur called second innocence. And it seems to me that every once in a while, a Christmas carol doing what you just described 
is not a retreat on your part to Eden. It's not Miwash saying he wants to be a child again. It is rather a plunge forward, a claim that it is possible for us at moments at least to find second innocence, the innocence of the full-grown human being. I think it has something to do with humbling. And what does it mean to rest Mary? To put it negatively, it would be not to be resigned. I assume that for the most part, growing up or moving to experience from innocence, as the romantics would say, is learning to resign oneself to an extent. Yeah, I think that's probably right. And that's a deep thought. You know, the growth into adulthood is experienced as a loss, particularly for the romantics. But I think in the human psyche, you do feel you lost something along the way. Whatever you gained, there was loss to go with it. This is why Wordsworth will describe growing up as shades of the prison house, closing in on the growing boy. We're being trapped in this way. It doesn't have to be so, Titus. Or at least in adulthood, we can wander lonely as a cloud. We can see the daffodils. We can experience what it would be like to be saved to have this possibility. And this is where, to take a slight turn, this is where I disagree with some of my friends. I have friends, deep believers, some of them genuine mystics, who hate modern Christmas. They hate the commercialization of it. They hate the franticness of it. They hate the decorations. They hate all of it. They think it's layering over the truth of the season. And Titus, I know exactly what they mean. I think anyone who thinks about it will know exactly what they mean. I also think they're completely wrong. Francis of Assisi was once asked by one of the prissier of the friars if it was licit to eat meat on Christmas. And he answered, if he had his way, everyone would eat meat on Christmas. The walls would be smeared with meat. It's just, it's such a Francis kind of line, right? But what he's speaking about here is the incarnation. He's speaking about the bodiliness of this and the way in which the season is encapsulated in the festival and the extravagance and the madness of it all. Because, Titus, it is mad that the divine would enter history. It is insane that God would descend in the flesh. Insane and mad in the literal senses of those, in that we cannot think our way through it. We can understand it as having happened. We cannot picture it before. And the Old Testament messianic passages come to us as prophecy, not as reason. So this kind of madness entering the world can be responded to, it seems to me, with the festival. I love inflated reindeer, six feet high, out on a suburban lawn. I love the houses swathed in lights. I love the decorations. I love the craziness. Yes, they could be more properly tied to the penitential season of Advent. Yes, they could be more religious and less secularized. I get it. And yet, I like it. I think that we are gilding something that is already golden, and perhaps that is a mistake in some sense of the word mistake, 
but the people are doing it not to dishonor God, but in their vulgar, inchoate, and wonderful ways, they're doing it to honor God. The extravagance of Christmas, the insanity of it, the inflated reindeers, the Santas, the carols that are playing out on the street, the shopping, the trees, all of the insanity of the Christmas season serves the purpose of ordinary people in their confused and ordinary way honoring the Lord. And I got to say, I approve. I see what you mean, and I'm of two minds on this. I do think that even in extremities of vulgarity, the joy is ultimately tied up with what there is to be joyous about, which is hope in salvation. In a way, it makes perfect sense because you don't have to suffer from your neediness quite so much when you have hope of surfeit, and you don't have to be calculated and prudent if you have hope of deliverance. But it's also a matter of being caught up in the thing. And if you're not and you're looking at other people's restlessness in this way, it's quite possible that one's own restlessness would cause one to disapprove, even to have an angry reaction. It's strangely easy to feel excluded from the merriment and to see it as clueless for that reason. Right, and we get that complaint about the extravagance of Christmas from two ends. From the very serious, stern Christians on one end, and on the other side, we get it from the non-believer, who feels this is some kind of a front. I just think the answer to both of them, Titus, is, and the answer to you, is dive in. Put on the goofy reindeer antler headband. Put on your little red hat, the red gloves, jingle bells as you walk. Do it. Just dive in. This is the easiest leap of faith you'll ever make. And after all, we're not offered a lot of opportunities to get our toes wet. This is the thin place. Of course you should dive in. The most quoted line I think I've ever had came from an essay in which I said some of this. And I looked at you know, the glossy magazines, Architectural Digest and the Williams and Sonoma catalogs and these expensive, the Christmas ads in the New Yorker. And I said, tastefulness, which is what, of course, all these were calling for, this expensive, tasteful Christmas. I said, tastefulness is just small mindedness pretending to be art. Just (laughs) throw it out. Dive in. It'll make you happy and feel weird and self and ironic. And so what? The season is big enough to contain it. God is big enough to contain it. The carols speak to us of all of the thickness of this world. And the medieval festival is exactly the greatest model ever found in the West of a thick world. That's a very good note, dive in. There is something unexplainable but easily experienced about joy, and we seem to concentrate it in Christmas, which, even in its commercial aspect, does serve to enhance it. No, I think you're absolutely right. This is why, of those two carols that the Nashville studio recorded from me, they're both, in a sense, about joy. One is literally, joy will keep us as the chorus, and just the kind of breakthrough that everything in the world is pointing to this. The very first line of that carol is, see these spires aspire to heaven. 
that there's this aspirational element in what we can do in the season. And if we catch that, then we have this possibility of having joy keep us, resting merry finding this place where we've reached a kind of second innocence and rejected resignation, the resignation that the modern saw. This is one of the courses, um, Dreamers Seek the Source of Dreaming, Wise Men Search for Wisdom's Throne, Christ Has Shown the Cause of Meaning, Truth Itself at Last Made Known. And then the other carol, which is a much more melancholy carol recorded there, which was Some Come to See the Lord, again sees the problem, at least tries to, in my incompetent poetic way, tries to see and express this when I say, we will escape the sadness. There comes now grace and gladness. And that idea that it's possible, maybe not likely, but it might be possible to escape the sadness. And if it isn't likely, well, Christ isn't likely. The descent of the divine into history isn't likely. It's the thing from outside that we need. We need to teach us about sacrifice, and we need to teach us about the possibility of gladness. It seems to me, Titus, that we should respond to the grand unlikeliness of Christmas, of the fact of Christmas, with grand unlikelinesses of our own. Uh, We should dive in. We should be surrendering, as Mary did, to the joyousness of this all. Indeed, there is no Christmas without miracles, and our inexplicable joy seems to correspond to that. Sir, thank you for joining me for what has been a, at times erudite and at times confessional conversation, and I think that it's necessary to see this in our art and in our storytelling concerning Christmas, that it does involve us, both in our biographies and in our thinking on things, that Christmas is a problem for us, not one that we can solve, but it is something that we can be part of, even without being in control. I think the note you struck with surrendering is essential to the phenomenon. To be part of Christmas at some level is to lose control and to be glad of it. I think you're right. Thanks a lot, sir. Goodbye. Thank you, Bye-bye. As children, they sang old Christmas songs. Some come because, as children, they suffered hurts and wrongs. The wounded, poor, and shattered, the heart sick, lost, and battered. Some come for life restored Some come to see the Lord Along the city sidewalks Old Santas ring their bells Along the city sidewalks Storefront music swell 
Come for 